welcome to Open Source Underdogs. I'm your host, Mike Schwartz, and this is episode 54 with Justin Borgman, chairman, CEO, and co-founder of Starburst, the company behind the Presto Data Access Project. One of the themes of Machiavelli's The Prince is virtue a fortuna, virtue meaning excellence in your domain and fortune meaning luck, whether good or bad. I really like how the story of Starburst exemplifies this 500-year-old insight. Justin has a ton of domain virtue. He has deep technical knowledge, but he's also on the lookout to harness Fortuna. He's one of the few podcast guests to acknowledge it, and Starburst earns its name because it's one of the most stellar open-source business success stories I've heard in the last few years. There's so many great insights in this episode, a lot to think about. So without further ado, let's get on with the interview. Justin, thanks for joining the podcast today. Hey, Mike. Super glad to be with you. Before we dive into the business stuff, I find it's helpful to talk a little bit about the technology. Can you start by giving a brief history of the Presto project, what it's good at, and how the community coalesced around it? It was really back in 2012, four developers at Facebook, Martin, Dane, David, and Eric, came together to create a new infrastructure project that would be a faster way of querying data at Facebook. Facebook, of course, collects massive amounts of data, hundreds of petabytes worth of data, and needed a faster alternative to a a prior project that they also developed there called Hive. Hive was a SQL engine for Hadoop, and it just wasn't fast enough. And so Presto was created to be a faster means of accessing that data, but it has one really important differentiation in, in addition to the speed, which is the ability to access data anywhere. So it's like a database without storage. That's kind of one way to think about it. So it, it looks at storage in, in other systems, which could be Hadoop, it could be S3 and AWS. It could be a traditional database like Oracle or Teradata or Snowflake. And regardless of where that data lives, Presto can reach it, query it, and deliver SQL-based analytics. So that's kind of what makes it special, is the ability to access the data everywhere. And that's gained particular momentum, I would say, more recently, as many large enterprises have data silo problems, where they have data in a bunch of different databases, and are now perhaps moving to the cloud in some fashion. And if I'm not mistaken... High concurrency is one of the areas that makes sort of this data access plane different. Yes, exactly. It's very fast and can support high concurrency. And in a lot of ways, you know, this technology was sort of, I like to say, built in reverse in the sense that it was tested at ridiculous scale from day one. You know, very often when you start something new, uh, you don't really know how it'll work at scale until you get people using it. But because it was really born out of the internet companies, you know, Facebook and Uber and Airbnb and Netflix were all early adopters to use the technology. It was really tested and at, at scale and, and as a result, delivers great performance and concurrency. So Starburst is not your first company. You were part of a team at a company called Hadapt that sold to Teradata in about three and a half years, I think. Yep. Um, how, how did that experience lead you to Presto? Yeah, you know, in a lot of ways, this is really a continuation of of that journey that began, you know, 10 years ago. So that was 2010 that I started Hadapt. Hadapt was a spin out actually from Yale University and the computer science department there, some research called Hadoop DB, which was which was pretty pioneering research at the time in terms of thinking about Hadoop as a data warehousing solution and being able to deliver fast SQL analytics on top of Hadoop. So we spun that out, uh, raised 
venture capital, built that business over nearly four years, as you mentioned, and then sold it to Teradata. We had you know ups and downs, definitely lessons learned through that experience. And I think really my discovery of, of Presto after arriving at Teradata in 2014 was kind of an exciting opportunity to, to reimagine the strategy that we had with Hadap. So Hadap was a SQL engine for Hadoop. Presto is a SQL engine for anything, essentially. It allows you to access data anywhere. And so uh, it was an opportunity to basically take all the lessons learned from the first experience and start to apply them over again. And so it was actually my team from Hadap that ended up contributing a tremendous amount of software to Presto and working with the guys at Facebook who created it to really make it an enterprise-grade piece of technology. And I think as we started to see Presto get more and more capable and see more and more people use it, that was what created the idea in our head that maybe there was a business to be formed around this. It's a really interesting opportunity, and I I can't actually think of another example like it. But when I'm talking about open source, I sometimes talk about three types of open source companies. One would be volunteer, where a bunch of guys or girls get together and write some piece of software that they that they love, but not, not necessarily for business. And then I talk about corporate open source, where there's some piece of software where a company funds it, but it's not their core business, but then they realize it makes sense for them to collaborate, like Kubernetes, let's say, and Google. And then there's pure play open source companies where the company behind it is developing it and they're the, the main contributors. And so Lots of great open source projects come out of this corporate open source um, area. The podcast that is mostly focused on pure play, because we're trying to help entrepreneurs and founders start open source, use open source as part of their business model. But you've sort of like created a very interesting situation where you have a mix of corporate and pure play um, because you're benefiting from not just the community, but really Facebook is a big contributor to the project too. You said almost, uh, I heard almost 50-50. So how has that really evolved and how do you continue to encourage this very symbiotic relationship? You're right that Presto has a very interesting history to it, interesting journey. You know, it, it started as a small project at Facebook. You know, when we got involved at Teradata, we were able to apply a few million dollars a year of R&D budget into, you know, advancing that as well. And then, of course, you've got a few other companies contributing also along the way. And as a result, you know, all of that kind of accelerates the development of the project. And, and I, think, I think that maybe that what's most unique here is not only that you know, Facebook created great infrastructure software as a byproduct of their business, they, they've certainly done that before, but rather that there was kind of a, a commercial partner very early on in myself and my team at, at Teradata thinking about the commercial applications of this. So, you know, back in 2014, Presto was still in its early days. Facebook wasn't trying to monetize it. Obviously, that's not their business. But we were already thinking about, you know, how this could be used by Fortune 500 customers and, and what difference this could make to their business, right? And I think that led to its very enterprise applicable evolution and set us up really well to to eventually commercialize this in 2017 when we left Teradata the creators of Presto joined us from Facebook and we went off on our way to to build this business so you were working on Presto while you were at Teradata and did Teradata ask for any equity or how did that work when you said when you told Teradata we, we want to start this company basically working on for, you know, at Teradata, like, what was that like? 
Yeah, well, what was interesting about that, and I guess just to set the context, I think Teradata, you know, from 2014 when they acquired my company, you know, through to probably today, has gone through various iterations of kind of rethinking their their overall strategy in terms of how they evolve into this next generation of sort of big data platforms because they you know had great success in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s as this kind of monolithic data warehouse where you would ingest everything and store it in one place. But obviously that became very expensive over time. And the appliance model, you know, hardware and software combined, wasn't necessarily set up for this future as people move to the cloud. So they've gone through a lot of iterations. And it was really in that iterative process where they weren't really clear where they wanted to go that they actually felt like Presto was maybe a distraction for them. So that actually created the opportunity, I think, for us to say, well, we think it's a little more than a distraction. And, you know, we'd be happy to sort of take that off your hands and and work on this together. And so it was a very amicable split. We remained partners. We're still partners today where we work together on, on some customer accounts. The technologies work together. We can access data in Teradata, for example, from Presto. And so that partnership remains. But but it was one that, you know, I think for for them, they viewed us as sort of taking Presto off off their hands because there were you know, maybe close to a dozen uh, companies within their customer base that were using Presto. And so we were able to deliver really first class support to those customers, you know, not provide any interruption there, even as we left and formed this new business. So no, they don't own equity. It's it's purely a, a partnership. It's just amazing, like how ideal your business is. You got a huge company, Facebook, to help you write and test this infrastructure. You got to do R&D at Teradata. And then you started the business with customers. It doesn't get any better than that, really. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're absolutely right. And and believe me, the good fortune is certainly not lost on me. I think, you know, one advice I give to entrepreneurs uh, of any type, not just open source entrepreneurs, is is to just have your eyes open to opportunity. I think it it passes us all by all the time and, and very often we miss it. And I think, you know, seeing it and then, you know, running and jumping on it you know, it certainly has been beneficial in in my career. I mean, even going back to my first company and and spinning out technology from Yale, which which you could argue, you know, was the great benefit of various government research grants, you know, funding that research in the first place. So, you know, just keeping keeping the eyes open and seeing an application for where it could become a business. So initially, you didn't have to raise money because you had some customers that came that provided some runway, but you did raise um, Series A in, I guess, October 2019, so pretty recently. Yep. So what was in the decision process to say, okay, now capital is going to help us? Like, What were some of the benchmarks that you reached that help you say, now is the time that we should do that? Yeah, so that's exactly right. So we started without raising any capital. That allowed us to build a profitable cash flow positive business over those first two years of, of operating, which I think, by the way, as an aside, gave us a lot of opportunity to be patient and sort of think through exactly what we wanted our go-to-market strategy to be, what kind of strategy we wanted to take around monetization. And we didn't have the pressure of you know, investors necessarily breathing down our neck, which, which I think many, many uh, entrepreneurs have you know, in those early days. So, so I think it was a great way to start a business. What forced us to change and, and actually consider taking capital was really a realization that the market opportunity was was bigger than we felt like we could actually satisfy growing at, at purely an organic rate. And so 
we took that Series A really as a growth round. You know, even though it's called the Series A, I think it's a, it's a little bit misleading because it's probably more like a, a Series B for most companies. Um, in, in that, you know, not only was it a large amount of money, twenty two million in that first round, but it was really deployed towards expansion and rapidly growing the business. Less so about proving product market fit, um, which is more typical in a Series A. As you said, we did a Series B shortly thereafter, which was probably more like a Series C, adding another forty-two million. So, so we've gone from raising nothing to now sixty-four million, and 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 really, I think that was all made possible by really building the fundamentals first. You know, making sure you have that product market fit sorted out, and then you know applying fuel to the fire to expand. What was the revenues when you raised the Series A? Yeah, well, uh, if it was twelve months looking forward, I would say it was already looking, you know, north north of ten million dollars at that point. So that that allowed us to really take the the funding and and apply it to again, you know, expansion rather than kind of sorting out the basic you know product details. And what year did you start? Did you actually start the company? Two thousand seventeen. That's pretty amazing. In two years, go to ten million revenues. <laughs> That's pretty stellar. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I think I think a big advantage here was that in some ways this was like building the same company over again. I mean, there are a lot of differences between this and my first, but there are also enough similarities just in terms of the types of customers that we sell to, the types of use cases, the types of problems that they're trying to solve. So I think that historical knowledge was advantageous for us to just move a little bit faster this time around than we did, you know, the first time. Okay, switching gears a little bit into more the the basic business stuff. You mentioned that uh, in one of your previous interviews that I listened to that Starburst is basically pursuing an open core strategy. Mm -hmm. So performance, robustness, security patches, that goes into open source. Things like connectors, security, ease of use, I guess GUI deployment stuff goes into into the core. One of the questions that I sort of wonder about is how do you decide how, how to prioritize R&D in open source versus the enterprise features when you go the, the open core route? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the key question. So it, it makes sense why you're asking it. And I, and I think it has to be on the mind of every open source entrepreneur. And, it, and it's a delicate balance because on the one hand, you, you know, want to make the open source project as useful as possible to get widespread adoption because really that's your your lead generation vehicle. I think that's the way to think about it. You know, a lot of people say open source is really just another form of a freemium business model, right? There's a free component and and that just happens to be open source in an open source model. And then, you know, how do you kind of upsell to the enterprise version? So for us, I think the the logic was, you know, what are the reasons why people use Presto anyways in the first place? And we think performance is a core element to that. So we wanted to make sure that performance is always great right out of the box with the first experience of it, you know, in, including the, the open source version. So that's why a ton of work goes into open source around performance enhancements, scalability enhancements, those kinds of things. And then we think about, well, what do, what do people in enterprises who, who are willing to pay for this stuff, you know, what do they want? And, and that's where it is things like security features, right, which are just essential for any large uh, mature enterprise, things like role-based access control, data masking. You know, if you've got uh, social security numbers or credit card numbers, being able to mask 
digits appropriately, having audit logs for, for querying. And then because Presto accesses all these different types of data sources, it, it also made logical sense that if you were going to access a database like Oracle or Teradata or IBM, all of which are very expensive in their own right, well, then the customer probably is willing to pay for uh, enhanced connectors to get faster throughput to those systems, right? So, so that was kind of the logic was trying to like think through, you know, what are the, the enterprise features that uh, someone is willing to pay a premium for versus what just produces an, an out-of-the-box great experience? Because I, I think so much about open source is really people doing their own self-evaluations of the technology, so self-POCs, if you will. And so you want to make sure that's great because you can't control that. You, you may not even know who downloaded it, right, in the first place. So that's where, you know, you really want to put, I think, a lot of energy in, into the open source uh, project. And then it's, it's more of those production-worthy features that are important to the larger enterprises where, where those, I think, you can hold back. So I, I interviewed Mike Olson from Cloudera. You might know him. I do. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. He was uh, one of my first guests, and he, and he gave a very similar comment to what you were just saying, and he was quite emphatic about it. And yet, Cloudera recently switched to a 100% open source strategy, and other open source companies have also, for example, Chef, and of course, um, some of the older Linux distributions, uh, Red Hat and SUSE, are all open source. And so one of the things I've been wondering myself is, you can use the open core strategy. It makes perfect sense, you know, I think to business people. But I also wonder, does licenses paying for the right to use the software? Do you think that customers are actually paying for the right to use or they're paying for the engagement with your organization? And do you think if you made it all open source, it would actually negatively affect your revenues or customers would still want to engage with Starburst, the company? I think I can speak from experience here because part of what's interesting about our history is that we've kind of evolved through the various open source business models in in our brief history. So when we first started the company, we didn't have any proprietary IP. So we naturally just sold support contracts. So those early customers that we started with were just support contracts. I think the challenge that we quickly identified is that support alone is not the most compelling value proposition. It, it is to some, I'm not, I'm not saying it's not, but it's not a sufficiently compelling, I think, to win over a broad set of customers. And so I think that's where the open core model, at least for us, really created an inflection in the business where you know now we had a, a real tangible reason. And by the way, for what it's worth, I think we learned this actually from our own prospects, those who were actually huge fans of Presto, who, who were huge fans of us even, who were, who were champions of, of what we're doing, but couldn't quite get the purchase across the line in those early days, in that first year of our operation, because they couldn't justify or explain to their boss why one would have to pay for something that was free, essentially. And that, that was the tricky conversation was like, well, you get this for free, why would you pay for it? Like, we don't need support. You guys are smart. You can support this, right? And those are the kinds of conversations that can take place. So I think that's where the open core model is really helpful to the business. You're selling a, a product. It's almost like a data access product. Like I call the Presto interface and it connects to, to backend databases. How do you price an interface? Like what are the buckets? I, I don't need to know the price, but I'm just wondering, like, how do you land and expand? And how do you, how do you set up the model so that 
it's easy enough for customers to understand and, and you can charge enterprise software rates for it. Yeah. So the way that we monetize is, is based on CPU consumption. Technically, we, we actually anchor on virtual CPU consumption because so many of our customers deploy in, in cloud uh, environments. So that's the underlying metric. And the reason that's a good proxy for us is because basically Presto is a technology that scales out super effectively and is leveraging compute intensively to execute the query. So it's basically like the more queries you have, the more data you're accessing, the more complexity of of the workload and the more users who are hitting the system. You talked about the strong concurrency that, that Presto provides. Those are kind of the dimensions that drive CPU consumption up. And, and we just monetize with that. So it's a straightforward metric, I think, that customers easily understand and uh, seems to work for us. In one of your previous talks I listened to, you talked about optionality mm-hmm. and how you, you recommended basically that you know optionality uh, essentially drives freedom. How does Presto help you get that optionality? Yeah, so Presto creates optionality by virtue of being disconnected from storage, essentially not having its own storage layer. You know, I used the analogy in the beginning that we're like a database without storage. The other way I put it for people who are familiar with data warehousing is we provide data warehousing analytics without the data warehouse. That's another way to think about it. So because of that, it basically allows you to think about Presto as an abstraction layer above all the data sources that you already have. And you can kind of skip the complex and time-consuming task of having to move data around, create copies of data, ETL it, you know, extract it, transform it, load it into another system. Instead, you can just do that at query time and, and access that data and, and get your results. So that gives you a lot of flexibility. And I think you know, one of the ways we've seen that play out is we have a lot of customers that have a classic data warehouse, maybe it's Teradata or Oracle, and then they've got some kind of a data lake strategy. And maybe that's you know, either Hadoop on-prem or maybe it's S3 or, or some cloud object storage. And you know, the first step might be to use Presto to just join tables between these two systems. You know, you've got some kind of user behavior logs in your data lake, and you've got billing data in your classic data warehouse. And you want to be able to correlate the behavior with, with the billing, let's say. That'd be a cl- very common use case for us. And you can do that with a simple query in Presto. Now, what that allows you to do then as a, as a second step is essentially hide from your own end users, be them you know, internal analysts, data scientists, uh, or, or even customers, where the data actually lives. They don't need to know that they need to go to you know, the data warehouse to get the billing data, and they need to go to the data lake to get the, the, the user behavior. They're just submitting a query, and they don't know where the data lives anymore. And by doing that, you're able to actually decouple your end user from where the data is stored and give the architects in the organization the ability to now decide based on cost or performance where that data should actually live. So you don't need to pay Oracle or Teradata tremendous amounts of money to store your data anymore. That is, of course, the most expensive storage you're going to find. You could instead choose object storage, you know, like Ceph from Red Hat, or there's a company on the West Coast called Minio, which creates S3 compatible object storage. And that's very inexpensive, relatively speaking. And, and you can deploy you know, all of your, your data or start to mi- migrate your data into this lower cost storage and still be able to access it while your, your end users are, are none the wiser to where the data lives. They're just getting 
their results. And, and so I think that's where you kind of get to create this optionality and be flexible about where you put your data over time. So in addition to the technical level, I always, I always think about optionality as it's, does the open source license itself also lead or open source infrastructure in general also lead to more optionality and freedom? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the, the notion of not having vendor lock-in is really important to customers, increasingly so. I think they've been burned over decades of very expensive technology that, that becomes legacy technology, and, and then they're stuck, and the pricing goes up, and, and they don't feel like they have much ability to, to resolve that. And I think the open source license in and of itself gives customers a lot of comfort in knowing that you know, worst case scenario, they can always roll this themselves with the open source. But also Presto is able to read open data formats, which is also great because I think data lock-in is probably the worst kind of vendor lock-in. And in a traditional database system, you know, once the data is loaded into the database, it's kind of, you know, not easy to get access to or, or get, get the data out without continuing to pay for that database system. But if you're using open data formats, which were really pioneered during the Hadoop era, these are like ORC or Parquet, if you're familiar with those file formats. You can store them uh, anywhere and query them with a multitude of tools. You could use Spark to do train machine learning models working off the same Parquet files that you're querying via SQL for Presto. And I think that gives customers a lot of flexibility as well. I read a lot of articles about how enterprises are really moving towards open source. Certainly when you look at the large Consumer-facing services, like you mentioned, you know, Netflix, Facebook, et cetera, they're building a lot on open source. Then you look at the size of the market and you see that actually from a market percentage, um, open source software is still only a tiny amount. Is the move to open source really real or is it more hype than reality? When you say the, the market is small, do you mean measured in dollars or, or what's the metric there? Dollars, yes. Yep, makes sense. Yeah, and, and I think that's the, that's the key piece is I think it's, it's probably super widely used, but the percentage of open source that actually gets monetized is relatively small. And I think that's what's translating to the overall dollar amount seeming small relative to the proprietary solution. So I think I think if you if you measure it in terms of impact to, to businesses and organizations, I think it's actually probably the, the, the reverse, actually, where, where you might have more open source software having bigger impact than, than the proprietary. But of course, the challenge, and, and I suppose this is the, the, the purpose of your podcast, is figuring out how to monetize that effectively so that you can build a, a successful business while having that broad impact that open source provides. And, and I do think that as vendors, we've gotten smarter over the years about how to do that. I mean, the way I think about open source business models over history is that it started with the, the sort of pure play support model, just offering support, nothing proprietary. I think kind of generation two was the open core model that we've spent time talking about. You know, Cloudera popularized that, as did many other companies. And I think generation three, which is actually where we're moving as well as a, as a company, is is cloud-hosted you know, SaaS uh, offerings and basically being able to make part of the value proposition the simplicity of the solution that you can deliver as a SaaS. And I think Databricks is a great example of that. So I think that's kind of the next frontier. And I think as more and more open source companies move in that direction, I think they'll probably have better success in monetizing that, that background usage of the open source. Because 
there's so much you can control now from a, a SaaS perspective to really enhance the experience that is just easier for customers to, to use your SaaS solution rather than having to maintain it themselves. I normally ask companies if they're developing a SaaS offering. And I think that there are some companies where it's been really successful, like Mongo, Elliot Horowitz from MongoDB is emphatic that cloud is the best business model and everyone should be doing cloud. In doing the 50 plus podcasts, I found that the results have been mixed, where sometimes companies find that it's a good way to reduce the try-by-fly time where they, the cloud offering is a good introduction, but then the revenues are mostly derived from the enterprise like self-hosted version. And it takes a lot of effort to actually, it's almost like a whole new product. Like you're building a software platform, a great software platform, and then building the SaaS is almost like a totally new product and different business endeavor. What's Presto done in this area? Are you working on it? Or do you have any thoughts about how that experience is going of sort of making a cloud offering out of the software? We, we definitely are working on it and, and we have been actually for quite some time. And it is hard work. I think there's no doubt about it. But I, I do think that some recent innovations around Kubernetes actually make this easier than it maybe was a few years ago, because Kubernetes can kind of create a uniform, almost like operating system, if you will, that you can, you can deploy your software within and therefore create, you know, sort of create the software once rather than having to have all these different kind of custom versions for different types of deployments, right? And, and so I think that's a, that's a game changer. It's certainly something we're betting heavily on as we uh, approach that by trying to create the same experience regardless of where customers deploy. Most of the old cloud services were multi-tenant, but are you thinking like with Kubernetes, we could maybe build a single tenant and deliver sort of like, we'll host it for you, you host it, but it's going to be sort of the same thing? That's exactly right. Yeah. You know, I, I don't want to give away too much of our strategy just yet because we haven't released the, the, the cloud product yet, but I think those are really important concepts that you highlighted there that, that we're, we're very interested in. So something you must have done a really good job at is building the sales organization, because um, $10 million in sales doesn't happen by accident. And I think sometimes founders underestimate how difficult it is to build the sales and marketing organization. Did you have any thoughts or advice you could share on like how that went for you, like how you, how you pulled it off? Like, how'd you do it? Yeah, so I think the, the first step, I would say, is trying to understand yourself as the entrepreneur, what the sales process looks like, like what are customers buying? How do they understand the value proposition? And I, I'm a big believer in entrepreneurs selling the first few customers themselves. I think you learn so much, even from a product management perspective of what you need, you get to experience what your sales reps will experience when you start to scale up. So uh, I'm a huge advocate of that. The second thing I would say is find a great sales leader because, you know, there are folks out there who have done this many times before and know what it takes to sort of scale up a sales organization. And, and certainly that was impactful for us in, in finding our VP of sales, uh, who's done a great job of really scaling up that organization quickly. One question I had was the, you know, the pandemic has changed things. We're much more remote. Were you remote before the pandemic? and has has uh, what's your plan for growing the team in the next couple of years? So we were not entirely remote, but we did have some level of distributed nature to our team before the pandemic. We had 
major teams in Boston, uh, the Bay Area, and then actually Warsaw, Poland as well as an important uh, development center for us. So, uh, so we kind of had to work across these three geographies, which are obviously spread out by nine hours of, of time zones. And I think that gave, it up, gave us maybe a head start on the pandemic. But to be perfectly frank, I mean, I, I would much rather go back to actually having an office and, and being able to uh, interact you know, on a one-on-one basis personally with so many of these people. Because I think what's been weird for us is we have scaled so quickly this year that I have not met probably half of our employees at this point, which is, which is just a weird thing you know, to, to uh, have grown the company so much. And the only interactions I've had have been over a Zoom call. So that part I miss. I, I do think we're all trying to make the best out of it, of course. And, and I think good best practices are sort of documenting everything, having frequent all-hands meetings where you get everybody together. But there's still no real substitute, I think, for one-on-one interaction. So last question, any advice for new entrepreneurs who are launching a business and they, they want to use open source software development as part of their, their business strategy? My advice would be to think early about that key question that you asked earlier in the podcast about what your monetization strategy is going to be and, and on, along what metrics are you going to, or, or what criteria, I should say, are you going to be separating uh, the enterprise value proposition from you know what you give for free, and, and I think kind of have a strategy early on and, and stick to it because I think that'll just make the decision making process so much easier for you as you go along. You won't have to debate each and every feature that you come up with. You'll just sort of know because it'll fall into a framework. That would be my piece of advice. Justin, thank you so much for sharing all this knowledge and experience with us. Thank you, Mike. This was fun, and it was great meeting you. Thanks to the Starburst team for reaching out and coordinating the podcast. Audio editing by Inez Satenji. Transcription and episode website by Maria Anchikovic. Cool graphics from Kamal Baratarji. Music from Broke for Free, Chris Abriski and Lee Rosevier. Next time, we're joined by Miguel valdez Faura, CEO and co-founder of BenitaSoft, a global provider of BPM, low-code, and digital transformation solutions. Until next time, stay safe and thanks for listening.